Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Matthew Holt, co-chairman of the Health 2.0 Conference. Matt, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Glad to be on. Yeah, thanks for coming. So can you tell listeners about the conference? What, what's the intention of it? What's it about? So Health 2.0 has been going about 10 years. In fact, we're about to do our 11th annual conference. So I guess turning the clock to, uh, to 11, coming up in uh, early October. We have been sitting at the intersection of healthcare and new emerging technologies, primarily initially ones that were kind of what I call smack health, social sensors, mobile analytics, cloud, and then K for kindness because it's healthcare. So but the new technologies that anybody um, you know, who's following your podcast would recognize because they're the ones that have been emerging now dominate over the, over the consumer and the enterprise space over the last decade or so in healthcare. And, and healthcare has been slow to adopt those technologies. So we've kind of been a, a little bit ahead of the curve there. So that's our main focus. And these tools get used in healthcare by patients, um, consumers, patient advocates, by clinicians, um, and more and more so by clinicians and, uh, and some enterprises. Um, and then by a lot of other people who are sort of circling around the healthcare system, such as payers, providers, uh, systems, pharmaceutical companies, et cetera, et cetera. So we've been focused on that for 10 years now, um, looking at technology both both in the U.S. but also uh, across the globe. So uh, that's, that's really what we do. And our, our shtick as a conference is to show a lot of live technology. We do a lot of live demos, and we show a lot of new products and new emerging technologies that we think will be impacting the healthcare system in, you know, Sometimes six months, but more likely three to five years. So, what are some of the um, the most useful and inspiring technologies you've seen? Whether or not they're being adopted yet, but what what excites you most? What's out there that's really cool? Well, I mean, I think you can sort of take this historically because everything that we have looked at is is still becoming a big deal in healthcare. And frankly, you know, um, things take much longer than we'd like them to. So, I think that probably you know you could start with where we started, which is a lot of the online patient communities people like patients like me or Inspire or MedHelp, which started out as really sort of online chat rooms between patients, but started to add really for patients, to, particularly patients with rare diseases, in some cases to track their conditions and share information between them about the impact of drugs and treatments and, and other things like that. Hmm. So, you know, I think that's a great start and those communities have gone on and many of them have added uh, functions and, and features and apps for, for tracking and, and, uh, and integrating that care and messaging it to, to, to providers. In some cases, 
providers and pharmaceutical companies and researchers have, have looked at those communities to try to understand more about what, what's going on with the conditions and actually use them in, in clinical research. So that's one great group. Um, I think the second one, which is now becoming a bit more mainstream, but took a long time to get there, is essentially uh, what I call Skype for Doctors, which was, we have an idea, we have, we have a category called patient to provide a communication. And if you think about it for better part of the last 10,000 years, you went to see a doctor, medicine man, shaman, what have you. It happened with the patient visiting the doctor, sometimes the other way around. But in, right. in that case, the, uh, you know, it was a face-to-face -face interaction. The patient was told something by the doctor and then the patient went away and who really knows what happened next until the next time the patient came back. And that's still the model, believe it or not, for you know, 98% of healthcare delivered in the world. Um, of course, in the rest of, sort of the enterprise and business world, we've, we've moved on and we have a lot of asynchronous and synchronous communication techniques. And there are many companies in which in the last uh, decade or so have been building those for healthcare. And now you're starting to see the spread of video visits and now even asynchronous um, visits. And some of the new, the new and more exciting versions of this are using artificial intelligence and bots to try to help so patients narrow down on their symptoms and, and get them to a to a uh, to understanding and possibly to to diagnosis and treatment even more quickly. I think that's an exciting area that, that's, that's changed a lot. And I think that one of the things that's the impact of that's going to be is that over the next uh, decade or so, the actual location of care delivery and the sort of the, how we organize care delivery systems, which are a huge business. I mean, in the US, we spend nearly 20% of the GDP on healthcare and every town has a hospital, which is probably the biggest employer in that town. And many of the big cities like Boston and Houston, you know, are dominated by these massive medical complexes. That's all going to start changing because we're going to start shaking out how we deliver care and a lot more of it's going to be uh, delivered virtually or even delivered uh, automatically. So I think that's a, the second one. I mean, and I think the, the, the third one, which is probably the most exciting, but is really just coming, is using the power of the processor and the sensor, um, which are, you know, in the smartphone, but also in many other things, the Internet of Things, of course, is, is a big play here, to do a lot more continuous monitoring. So if you think about it right now, you, you, you've all seen the, uh, the TV shows, you know, people are in the ICU after surgery and there's lots of machines plugged into them and they're going beep <laughs> or ping or what have you. We're moving right. now to a world in which the, the sensors involved and things for tracking things like blood pressure and heart rate and uh, you know weight and a bunch of other and, and temperature and a bunch of these vital signs or for people with diabetes things like blood sugar levels or for people with asthma peak flow or the regularity of, of needing an asthma medication rescue inhaler that kind of thing a lot of those devices are now starting to appear connected to the internet of things in the bathroom or the, the living room or wherever or the bedroom wherever people people do these things and I think again this is early stages but you're starting to see a lot of tracking of, of this. Half of it is kind of for healthy athlete types, you know, weekend warriors getting their Fitbits and Fitbits now, you know, those kinds of companies are now tracking sleep and heart rate, rate and that kind of stuff. And the other half is for pretty sick people who've been discharged from the hospital and now come home instead of with, mm. a, instead of with you know, either not going home, now have, have patches on them which, do, which track the heartbeat and respiration and that kind of stuff. And you're going to see much more of that. And I think sort of the gap between those two groups it's going to be filled to most people with some level of chronic disease, which is a huge number of people, about somewhere between a quarter and a third of the U.S. population has some kind of chronic condition. We'll find that they're going to be tracked much more regularly rather than just kind of being tested once they go to the doctor every three months or how often it is. And I think it's very exciting to see the, the rise of, of these kinds of sensor-based um, monitoring systems. And that leads us to another 
area of, of technology, which is the sort of the some people call it deep search, or some people you know call it artificial intelligence or natural language programming, or whatever you want to call it, which is trying to figure out from all this data what's actually going on with people, <laughs> because we're we're seeing a lot of right. uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, uh, data starting to come, and and we haven't really figured out how to how to track it, um, and the whole sort of idea of how to advance clinical understanding and how to figure out that some of these diseases, which we thought were one disease, maybe fifteen or twenty diseases. You know, and, and how do we personalize treatments for individuals and how to change, change their drug regimens and that kind of stuff. There's a whole bunch of work to be done on that, which will be advanced by this new type of sort of monitoring technology. So why is the medical industry slow, so slow to adopt something you think that's simple, like doing a consult with your doctor over Skype instead of having to go to their office? What's the, the holdback, the resistance? Yeah, so the resistance is... is Three main things, and all of, any one of them are uh, most of them don't exist in other in, in other entities, um, in other industries. So it's it's actually not that surprising. But I, I call it institution, profession, and incentive. So we have large institutions in healthcare, predominantly hospitals, but also other ones, which, because of their um, history, have a sort of special place in the political ecosystem of of, of not only this country but many others. So it's very hard to close down a hospital. So if, if, you know, I figure out Amazon and I can put Barnes & Noble out of business, or is it Borders, whoever they put out of business pretty quickly, there's no, you know, wailing and gnashing and teeth about that. That's business and, and it's a cash-based payment and off it goes. Uh, the, the Barnes & Noble or the, the, uh, the, the Borders equivalent, you know, the big hospitals, they get most of their money from the government. There's a very complex way they get paid and they have lots of little influence in that. So it's, and they're also very large employers in their individual, in their individual you know, Regions, so it's very hard to to you know to change them and to replace them. You've come up with a better idea. Just the the weight of the institution means it's hard for that for the institution to change, and that means it's hard for it to change internally because they don't have the same kind of drivers that uh, for-profit businesses do, where they go, well, if we don't get it right, Amazon will put us out of business. And by the way, right. it's hard for those for-profit businesses to change. Plenty of for-profit businesses go away, even though they just have the same incentive of you know, profit maximization. They still get it wrong, right? For a lot of internal reasons. So that's what. The second is is profession, and uh, you know, in particular, the medical profession, but you know, other parts of the, the the healthcare, you know, labor force, have got a lot of history, and uh, not only history, but also you know, regulation and, and education around what they do. And essentially, you know, the, the doctors. There was a big, big change in medical education uh, called the Flex Report back in nineteen. 19- 17, I believe it was, um, I might have the year off by date or two, which changed how medical education has been done for the last sort of the previous 80 years and made it a lot better, but it hasn't really changed since. So the way that we teach doctors and the, the way that doctors go through medical, through, through undergrad to medical school, through residency and learn sort of from the feet of the, you know, the bedside of the, of the masters and the way that the money flowing into education and then into these large academic medical centers and medical schools optimizes, uh, sorry, o- o- renders the greatest prestige to uh, specialists and sort of doesn't encourage sort of radical innovation and instead encourages sort of uh, following along in a, in, a, in a profession means that mm. although there are lots of doctors who want to change what, what they do, it's hard for them to do that. And, and there's, you know, this big professional weight and then you have things like you know, the American Medical Association, the specialty societies, all of which, you know, there's a lot of ways, you know, if you want to change something within healthcare, a lot of, a lot of politics in doing that. And again, they also have a lot of say over how the money flows. And the third one is the money, it's incentives. Um, most 
it's not quite exact, but about in the U.S., about half the money comes from a government program, Medicare for the 55s or Medicaid for the poor and now the, the, the working uninsured or the the Republicans may be changing that this week. We'll see. And then the rest of it, the majority of the rest of it comes from probably the way you and I would get our insurance from our employer, employer pay through it. And it's all essentially routed into a system that was set up in the 1930s by the Blue Cross plans when they were established, which got locked into place by the introduction of Medicare and Medicaid in the 1960s, which is known as the fee for service system, which essentially means that every process or transaction or thing that uh, the health system does to you bills and gets money for. So it's set up to do more and more things to you. And a lot of the, uh, uh, and you know, and this is basically still, the, the, despite a lot of attempts to reform, this, still basically how healthcare is paid for. And if you think about a lot of the use of information technology and, new t- and, and these kinds of new technologies to, to do things a different way, they are a lot of the, a lot of the sort of long-term outcome from them would be that you would change the way that you deliver care. But the incentive system is set up with a very, very detailed system of payments for particular activities that may not include these. So, for example, uh, we talked about virtual visits and telehealth. It's been a sort of 20-year battle to get Medicare to pay for these things so that you could, instead of doing an in-person mm-hmm. visit, do a virtual visit. Take all, and, it, and it's really only the last five years or so that even insurance companies have been prepared to pay for that. Um, so getting these things changed ends up being a political of sort of a big political battle, and it takes it just it just takes a long time. So even if you could flip the switch on the, the institution part, the profession part, or the incentive part, you know you still have the other two to like to like hold you back. And I think those are some of the reasons. Now you'll also hear other people say, well, healthcare is incredibly complex; it's a life or death issue. We can't just right. uh, we can't just you know take on new technology because you know you might start killing people. We're, we're already, we already, already do plenty of killing people within the healthcare system. There's lots of medical mistakes and lots of medical errors and things that, that, you know, that technology potentially, yeah. potentially could solve. But I mean, that's been part of the reason. And, it, and if you want to see a reason, you know, uh, an example of how we did actually take on more technology, the last five years or so, the U.S. has gone from being roughly about 25% of clinicians and hospitals using electronic medical records now to about 80%. And that was purely because the government sort of said you had to and paid for it. As part of the the, mm. the uh, Obamacare, the not Obamacare, part of the Recovery Act, and um, in 2009 had some right. had about 30 billion dollars in it for electronic medical records, and so we spend that 30 billion putting in kind of 2005 style technology, which most hospitals and doctors now have. Kind of a pity because now we're at 2017, we could do better, but <laughs> you know we could. Right. You can move the needle on technology if prepared to to change the incentives. So, what have you seen, or what do you think will be the positive benefits of New technology being adopted by the medical profession, electronic records, you know, visits and follow up, you know, perhaps through Skype sensors so people can monitor themselves a lot more closely at home and then interpretation of that data. You know, what do you guess will be the benefits, the size of them, the scale of them? Yeah, I, I think when we, you know, it is a hard one to track, but there's no reason why we can't deliver better care for lower cost. The vast majority of, of the cost in healthcare get spent on a very small number of people. And the, the, the old adage is it's 80-20, you know, 20% of people cost 80% of the amount. It's actually, you know, 10% costs 50% of the amount and there's 2 to 3% who cost 20% of the amount. So, you know, you can imagine that people are very, very... So if you can figure out a way using better monitoring, 
earlier intervention, tools like AI and virtual visits and coaching to persuade people who have got chronic conditions to, to change their lifestyle. You know, the old adage of you know getting the, the person with diabetes to start going for a walk and eating less sugar and you know um, uh, and, and checking their insulin, uh, checking their, their their blood sugar levels and you know using the proper number of insulins. You can probably reduce the number of people who end up in one of those what healthcare wants called high acuity settings, which is you know even having a lot of stuff done to them at an outpatient basis or having done, having to go to hospital. So you can probably reduce a lot of that. And there have been people who have been relatively successful in a relatively small scale about doing more intensive coaching, more intensive follow-up, and often not with the benefits of great technology and sort of saving, you know, improving out health outcomes and saving, you know, between 20 and 40% of the overall cost in relatively small populations. The idea of technology is that you can do the stuff at scale, right? So that you can give these things to everybody and, and that they start getting relatively cheap and you can start changing how you put the healthcare workforce to get to, together to monitor. When I say put it together, how do you, how you compose the healthcare workforce and what they do. So they're doing sort of more monitoring of the chronically ill and more education and more sort of prevention than cure towards the end. So that's, that I think would be the optimistic way of, of saying how you think, you know how, how this should play out and, and what the long-term benefits should be. And you can see this in lots of individual cases. I mean, there's a company called Iora Health, which is a so essentially a startup physician primary care clinic that literally allocates uh, coaches to all of its chronically ill people. And these people using a combination of you know the phone, some IT, some some technology, and and you know, even in-person visits. You know, they essentially bug the crap out of these these chronically ill people, get them on their side, change their behavior, and they find that they they can start really literally changing how they're uh, start changing start changing their outcomes by helping them through the process. Um, and that reduces the more the likelihood that they go to hospital, reduces the likelihood they go to the emergency room, reduces the likelihood they have complications down the road, which might be include blindness or amputation or something like that for a diabetic, which can be very very serious. So so that kind of thing scaled by technology. I think it's probably our our best shot. The 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 issue is of course that we're going to, you know, when you're trying to introduce this type of technology and no one's absolutely certain, you know, what happens next and the you know and and we don't have a really clear roadmap for how to get from here to there, you know, you have a lot of dislocations. And I think and I think a lot of the complaints from the medical profession and clinicians as a whole as to as to the introduction of technology has been that it's sort of stopped them doing their work rather than them help them. So uh, you know, that, that's a, a question as to whether the next generation of te- technology you know, helps rather than hinders. And we all have examples of technologies that have come into our lives that some of this should be great, but for some reason don't work very well and probably get in the way of our workflow. But we also have it, you know, examples of technologies that come into our lives and suddenly make things that were very complex much easier. So uh, we're, you know, we've got to hope it's the latter, the latter in the healthcare case. What, what conditions, I mean, you talked about diabetes, bunch of times. What are some of the um, conditions that you think would be most helped by all this technology uh, being used by the medical system? And which ones do you think will have the most benefits society-wise? So the, the, the biggest problem you know, is what uh, health policy wants to call NCDs, which is non-communicable diseases, <laughs> um, which really are, are lifestyle diseases, and they cost them. They cost the most money. There are there are certain things that's hard for the healthcare system. It's hard to deal with, you know, in, on its own. So there's a lot of money spent on trauma between traffic accidents and gunshot wounds and what have you. And you know, you, you, that's not a healthcare system problem. It's done fixing it up. But the big categories of diseases where most of the spending is and a lot of the suffering is are, are the big chronic disease categories. So diabetes is 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 the biggest and most prevalent. There are things which which are connected to 
um, uh, connected to uh, usually diabetes is one connected to obesity, but things like heart disease, um, lung disease, uh, you know, pulmonary disease, COPD, congestive heart failure, uh, heart attacks, um, those kinds of things. A lot of this is that not only you know years before these things develop, should we all be eating better and walking more and all that kind of good stuff. And, and eating right and, you know, not doing what I did last night, which is uh, found there was some ice cream cookie dough in the fridge and had that in front of the TV. But, uh, but additionally, um, there's actually things you can do right at the point of when these things are happening. So, you know, can you, can you actually work with people who are very close to the edge by sort of bringing them back and having them lose a few pounds? There are a number of companies now and uh, programs um, now running, running, a, running sort of interventions that look kind of like Weight Watchers. It's a company called Amada Health, which does this, another one called Canary Health, which does this, which are essentially interventions to help patients manage their weight when they're on the edge of just going into that, getting diabetes programs sort of mm. called metabolic syndrome. There's also another bunch of, of technologies and companies who are trying to help people who have either just been discharged from the hospital, have got one of these long-term chronic conditions, manage their life better, whether it's diabetes, heart disease, or what have you. And a lot of the same things apply. A lot of it's around diet, exercise, monitoring, blood pressure, and, and that kind of thing, and using technology and coaching to do that. So you're going to see a lot more of that. So if you could get at those big disease categories and the kind of things that you hear about, like you know, high blood pressure and like cholesterol and, and uh, you know, the, the heart disease and, and, and even monitoring people who have been released from the hospital um, who've had a condition but making sure they don't go back, which we're starting to see. If you can get at that, you can get at a bunch of the big disease categories. The, the other major disease category, which, which, you know, is harder to figure out, but also is, right. is having some changes is, is, is all the cancers. And they, you know, this is a, there is some link between obesity and lifestyle and, you know, cancer and obviously some lifestyle conditions like, you know, smoking, obviously relates to, 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 to lung cancer. And there are some other environmental factors that relate, relate to cancer. But because cancer is a fast onset disease in general for much of it and requires a lot of intensive right. uh, activity and care for, for people up and down the age range rather than something that you get, you know, you don't have 35 years of bad life that gets you to, to, most, to breast cancer, you know, it appears pretty quickly. You're starting to see some people trying to figure out if there are ways that you can use data and technology to not only manage the process of cancer better, deliver more accurate um, uh, care based on genomic um, and other omic factors, um, and also try to figure out from the data we're collecting, you know, what works and what doesn't. Because in cancer, there's so much different activity and so many different new tr drugs being tried all the time. It's actually, right. you know, there's a data collection problem in that. Whereas kind of for di diabetes, we kind of know what to do, but don't really do it well. In cancer, we generally don't really know what to do. Gross oversimplification, and many oncologists will be beating me up for hearing that. But uh, you know, we'll, we have a lot more to learn, I think, more, more quickly in cancer, and technology can can help that. There's, there's some interesting companies uh, which we feature Health 2.0 doing some of that. One of them has got a lot of investment from Google Ventures. It's called Flatiron, and they're trying to basically capture as much information about uh, cancer. They provide an electronic medical record out to oncologists. They capture information. They're doing a lot of deep deep learning on that information uh, on the data they're bringing back and they're trying to figure out you know, essentially what works and what doesn't in terms of different drugs and, and different trials and, 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 and that kind of thing. So on the, um, on the cancer front, um, which I guess all these, uh, these new initiatives and this new technology you think will help any other new technologies you think are going to be really important to the medical profession for cancers or for you know, other conditions, diabetes, et cetera, anything you haven't mentioned yet that maybe it's, yeah, it's too I, soon. Maybe it's a technology well, that so I think there are things. That are going to, I think there are some technologies that are going to dramatically impact the medical profession that I haven't really uh, mentioned yet. So I think one of them is is the sort of increased number of things that we are tracking. So I mentioned we mentioned the genome briefly. I mean, so I talked about 
essentially vital signs, you know, hypertension and uh, high blood pressure and weight and what have you, and those are very, very important. Then you've got this enormous amount of data coming down the track around the genome. And then you have uh, people who, who, you know, honestly believe that, that uh, maybe right, but a lot of this stuff is connected to what's in your, your microbiome and your gut and proteomics and there's all osomics. And the, so we're going to be testing a lot of different stuff and seeing what looks out. And I think that for the medical profession, helping that, you know, trying to keep up with us using essentially AI plus, you know, clinical decision support to help keep up with all this information is going to be, that's going to be a big piece for people who are, who are doctors to, to figure out. The other thing is going to be using robots of various kinds to do lots of different things. And you're already seeing robotic surgery becoming quite a, quite a, quite a big deal. But I think um, a series of, you know, you can see across healthcare, a series of use cases for robotic assistance in many different areas. So one I would pick that, that is relatively obvious and people are working on is um, in the mental health area, where a lot of people are starting to use avatars, uh, in some cases, um, virtual reality and what have you for, for doing it. For robotics, is, I use that word very widely here, maybe a virtual robot to, uh, to, to, to do patient monitoring and patient treatment. But even in some other areas, for example, uh, I do a decent amount of work in Japan. And in Japan, there's a massive imbalance in, in the population. They have a lot more elderly people and not enough young people to look after them. And I think you're going to see a lot of robotics to, to do very basic, you know, care, literally care and feeding of, of seniors in nursing homes and a lot more of that stuff is going to be outsourced to, to, to robotics. Um, there will be the kind of nursing equivalent of the driverless car. <laughs> you think about where that's heading. Right. So I don't, I don't know where you are in the sort of driverless cars here by next year versus 2050, but they're coming at some point, right? And I think you're going to see yeah, I think pretty that, that level of, of robotics somewhere in that time frame come into and start assisting you know, across widely across, uh, you know, the healthcare system. So quite when that starts to impact what doctors do and when, you know, you get assistant surgeons and nurses and what have you who are robots or assisting, I don't know. Clearly, you're going to start getting that in the on the AI front in terms of the, you know, the, the, the clinical decision support and other decision support from, you know, the, the medical Siri or the medical Alexa, you know, in 10, 15 years time, which is, well, uh, and even the what you know, IBM Watch is trying to do this right now. So I think you're gonna you, you you're gonna feel a lot of that stuff impacting on how the medical profession works over the next five to fifty years. All right. So you know we're coming to the end. Tell me a little bit about the conference. When is it? Where is it? And sure. what are some of the highlights of what's going on with the conference this year? Yeah, I mean, so uh, the big half two conference is in Santa Clara, California, October the first to the fourth. We have a bunch of different pieces go on. We'll be touching on a lot of these things that we mentioned, diabetes, cancer, um, looking at how new technologies and new care organizations are sort of coming around to, to work, uh, you know, to, to, to work with patients on that. We'll be having a whole, a whole series of sessions on uh, data analytics, uh, artificial intelligence, and the impact of, 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 the, of those types of technologies and how healthcare organizations are adapting and how they're using them. We will also uh, look at some things that are not technology-based. We have a whole session called the, um, well, we used to have a session called the unmentionables, which are the things we didn't talk enough about in healthcare, and we've now moved that toward to the unacceptables, which are some of the things that hmm. we don't think about in healthcare, like the lack of diversity in technology and, and senior levels in healthcare, um, epidemics of loneliness for patients uh, and, and seniors physician burnout, some things that are going on in the healthcare system we want to shine a light on. Um, and then we have uh, a, a, you know, a lot of work on some of the, the underlying technology issues, 
Uh, we'll be featuring blockchain. We feature a lot about the emerging APIs in healthcare and how that's helping to move some of this data around out of the data silos that a lot of healthcare's data has been stuck in. Um, and we'll be looking and, and we'll be featuring a lot of new technology companies you know, across the board in these and many other areas, uh, electronic records, um, new, new ways of doing patient care management, new ways of doing hospital operations. We feature about or about 150 to 200 live demos of technology. So far too many to, to, to capture in this, but um, a lot of those things will be, uh, will be will be featured at the conference. And then we have panels for investors, panels uh, panels and sessions for, for hospitals and providers. Uh, we have a breakout session purely for patients. We have a breakout session for new tech for, for for techno geeks, literally looking at sort of technical. Um, issues around uh, APIs and, and, and that kind of stuff. So uh, it's, a, there's, there's, it's a big, big conference, about a couple of thousand people, because they're all more than 100 companies. And so if you care yes. about health, new health technologies, it's a great place to be. And where's the website people can go to to get yeah. all the information sure. and the register? Please, uh, you, you can find us at Health2Con, which is health, the number two con, C-O-N, uh, health2con.com, at Health2Con on Twitter. You can find me at Boltyboy, B-O-L-T-Y-B-O-Y, um, you can find my uh, co-founder and partner in Dubai at Blue Topaz, um, and uh, or you can Google Matthew Holt. And I come up pretty quickly. There's a fashion model in London who is younger and better looking than me, but otherwise I'm kind of usually the next. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully with you being surrounded by all this health stuff, you'll uh, find like a, an elixir of youth and uh, overtake that person. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that technology is quite. Although there was a guy called Aubrey de Grey wandering around Silicon Valley promising that he's going to fix that, but uh, I'm not quite sure that one's coming out in five to ten years. And even if I was younger, I'm not sure if he's good looking as that guy. So. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for, uh, for doing the call. I really appreciate it. And, you know, no one likes going to the doctor. No one likes uh, the way the health healthcare system is right now. So I, I know we're all hoping for these improvements you talked about to become widespread, the sooner the better, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, we're, we're Richard, we're, we're, we're optimistic, but realistic, I think, about, about the way it comes. But unless you show people the possibilities, and that's kind of what we do in our conference world, then, then everyone's going to sort of be accepting of, of, of the, uh, the normalcy they have now. So we're hoping that uh, people will, both consumers, employers, payers, governments, and, and people in the system will realize that they can do a lot better because they, uh, we should be able to. Yeah. Well, very good. Well, thanks again for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. The Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.